Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about bird flu. While the coronavirus has largely receded from the daily consciousness of most folks, it's not gone away completely. Just the other day, someone told me that local hospitals here in my area, Louisville, Kentucky, are beginning to enact new masking policies. Regional and national hotspots remain across the globe. Countless people are grieving the almost 6.8 million people the virus has killed so far. Most people, I think, are operating under an unspoken belief that what we have learned or haven't learned won't matter, that the odds of something like this happening again in our lifetimes is slim. If you'll forgive me for a horribly bad pun, they may be counting their chickens before they hatch. The looming culprit is bird flu, a devastating virus responsible directly and indirectly for the death of millions of birds, most notably chickens, who are being slaughtered in countless numbers as a prophylactic against further spread of the disease. Why are eggs so expensive today? Fewer chickens, fewer eggs, supply and demand. But the real threat to humans is so far merely potential, albeit increasingly likely. Here to talk about bird flu and its potential harms to people are Wayne Priscelli, president of Animal Wellness Action, and Drs. Jim Keen and Tom Poole. Dr. Keen is the director of veterinary sciences for the Center for a Humane Economy, our sister organization, and Dr. Poole is the senior veterinarian for Animal Wellness Action. And what's made this all the more timely for us is our recent work on cockfighting. We've recently had several press conferences with uh, drone footage of cockfighting operations in Oklahoma, Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. Uh, Wayne, let's go to you first, if we could, please. And why don't you get our listeners up to speed what we've been doing on cockfighting and where our organization is combating that scourge. Joseph, thank you. Most people recognize that Cockfighting is a morally settled issue, uh, but it's not practically settled. There is enormous underground and even above ground cockfighting in the United States and throughout the world. I estimate, based on our series of investigations into the major cockfighting states in the US, cockfighting states in the sense that not that it's legal, but that there is activity, there may be 20 million fighting birds in the United States. It's just incredible. You know, one key informant with a partner organization of ours, uh, Shark, uh, says that there may be 100 cockfighting arenas in Kentucky alone. You think of all of the breeding operations where they're raising game fowl for fights in the U.S. as well as fights throughout the world. The United States has become the breeding ground for the global cockfighting industry. So we're fighting this. We're not tolerating it. It's a federal felony. Uh, to engage in cockfighting, breeding for cockfighting, transporting the animals, uh, trafficking in the cockfighting implements that they attach to the bird's legs. So we want to root this activity out. And we're engaging in 101 things to make that happen. But I'm really conscious of the fact that this avian influenza outbreak has been going on for a while. It's hit the United States uh, with, a, with a very forceful punch. And we happen to have at the Center for Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action, 
not only two outstanding veterinarians, but two veterinarians who have advanced degrees in infectious diseases. And, you know, I really turned to them to give me insight and to give the center and AWA an ability to really broaden this narrative and talk about animal health more broadly and how those animal health issues may in fact intersect with human health. So Dr. Jim Keane and, and Dr. Tom Poole have been doing a lot of work to untangle these issues. And, and Dr. Keane was the primary author of a report on cockfighting and avian diseases. And I think it's really a tremendous report. It should be mandatory reading for every agriculture committee chair of every state. The agriculture committee chairs for the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House. This is a problem that people just do not understand the magnitude of it in terms of the amount of cockfighting activity and the global trafficking in fighting birds. So uh, uh, we are fighting it, Joe, uh, but we've got to bring every element to the fight. We've got to bring an understanding of these zoonotic disease health issues. Yeah, thank you. And I'll put a link to that report in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, watching it on YouTube, uh, you can go to the show notes and read that uh, report. So uh, let, let's get in then a little bit to the potential spillover. When we were talking about coronavirus, uh, our organization and many others talked about the propensity of mink or the ability of mink to incubate coronavirus and spill it back to people. Recently, NBC News and others have reported on mink now coming down with bird flu. Uh, Dr. Poole, let me start with you. How likely is it we're facing an emergent corona-like um, situation, albeit with a disease potentially far more lethal than coronavirus was? Well, if I can just back up to, to get us all kind of at the same place, um, just to understand that we're talking about a virus and, and viruses are very different from bacteria and things and the viruses aren't, aren't truly alive. Um, to be alive, you normally eat and poop and reproduce yourself. And a virus, all it does is reproduce itself. A virus is just a little bit of genetic code. It's a little message and the message says, make more message. And so viruses have been around for a long time. And, but humans didn't have influenza viruses um, 30,000 years ago. We know that because when the North Americans now, that is the North Asians crossed the land bridge during the last ice age, humans didn't have influenza then. Then about 12,000 years ago, the bridge melted and there was no more contact between Asia and North America. At some point, that is when influenza jumped the first time from poultry, which has been in for millions of years, into humans. We know that because when the Europeans came to the Americas, um, they had influenza and the natives did not. So this is a poultry disease that jumped into humans sometime in the last 10, 15,000 years with uh, apparently very devastating results the first time. Now we've had other influenza pandemics. The first and most notable one in recorded history was during World War I, the Spanish flu. And that killed between 50 and 100 million people around the world with only a two and a half percent uh, mortality rate, but it spread rapidly and it uh, it tend to sort of get all ages, uh, young people too, unlike, for example, COVID-19 that concentrates on older people. So since then, we've only had a few influenza viruses, avian influenza viruses that had the ability to jump into humans. So that happened in 1959 and 1968, 
and those were not real hot viruses, but still killed people. And then the last one that we know about um, <clears throat> happened in, um, let's see, it was 19, uh, it was 19, well, it was Obama's, the year Obama took office, I recall. Uh, 2009 was the swine flu, right? 2009, right, that's the H1N1, thank you, Wayne. That's the H1N1 swine flu. And that one was an interesting virus because it was an avian influenza virus that, that jumped into swine and swine are one of those few animals that will also harbor human influenza viruses. And so something happened called reassortment. And, and, and I apologize for all this background, but, but I think it's necessary to get us up to speed to what is really happening because what is happening with the reassortment as opposed to a mutation, with the mutation, you just have a few little pieces that will change in a DNA or RNA strand but with a reassortment, you have entire genes that are transposed and it happens in a single cell. And so in a single cell, you'll have an avian influenza virus and you'll have a human influenza virus. And what a virus does, I said it's a message that, that makes more message. It attacks that cell and hijacks the machinery of that cell that is normally producing the things that that cell needs, um, enzymes, structural proteins, all those sorts of things. It, it hijacks that machinery and says, you're not making any of that anymore. You're making virus from now on. And that's what that cell does until it dies. Well, what happens when you have both viruses in there, they can mix genetic material. And so the genes for infectivity, which normally the influenza virus of human infectivity don't have, can mix with the highly pathogenic genes that for example, H5N1 have, and the human influenza does. And now you end up with a new virus. And this virus can have some or all of the infectivity or infectiousness of human influenza and some or all of the pathogenicity of H5N1. H5N1, this one that is now sweeping across the United States, you know, sort of popped into view um, in the early 2000s, 2003, 2005, everybody really became aware of it. And since then, about 700 people have been infected with it, mostly poultry workers in Asia, because what this really requires is pretty intimate contact between poultry and humans. And so when this has happened, this virus is so hot that more than half of those people died, even with the very best medical care, with an entire hospital devoted to trying to save one life, and more than half of them died. So, but... Fortunately, in those 700 cases, the virus never reassorted with human influenza. It may just be luck, there may be other reasons, but for some reason it hasn't happened yet. But there's no good reason why it couldn't happen. And we have these mixing vessels that are really great at doing that. Pigs are one of them, mink are another. But a human can also be that, that mixing vessel. And so that's why we worry so much about cockfighters because they have very, very intimate exposure with these birds. I have spent you know, the last 17 years on Guam as the territorial veterinarian and, and cockfighting is rampant here. And these cockfighters will actually sometimes in the middle of the fight, put the bird's mouth, I mean, put the bird's head inside their own mouth and suck the airway secretions out of that bird so that the bird can have more energy and, and fight better, can can move air better. Well, you just can't imagine any higher risk behavior than that, you know, sticking the head of a bird into your mouth and sucking out its airway secretions. So if that human happens to have influenza at the same time it's exposed to H5N1, 
then you have the perfect conditions for this, this reassortment to occur. And if this were to occur, this virus is so hot that if we did end up with a virus that was then able to jump from human to human, it would make us forget all about COVID. It would, I mean, if this thing left, if this thing left two thirds of its pathogenicity behind, and if it came out of there with a 25% mortality rate, let's say, well, that would, in my opinion, end civilization as, as we know it. And for, for some period of time, no one's going to go to work. They're not going to deliver food or fuel or law enforcement or anything like that when they're looking at a 25% mortality rate. Look what COVID did, you know, with a less than 1% mortality rate. Uh, and whenever you look at, you know, people under age 40, it was much, much less than that. When you look at the workforce, they really weren't at great risk from COVID. Well, the workforce would likely be at tremendous risk from this thing. And so the potential for harm, I, I think it's impossible to exaggerate it. And that's what is so dangerous about continuing to tolerate cockfighting when it really risks all of human civilization as we know it. And I, I just wish I could convince you that's not an exaggeration. Yeah, you know, it sounds, it sounds alarmist uh, and unbelievable when, when you talk about the things you just described, uh, Dr. Poole. But go back to 2018, 2019, and who would have believed what was what was coming down the pike? Our inability to imagine the worst case scenario doesn't prevent the worst case scenario from from happening. And as you described the genetic confluence, I, I can't help but with some amusement to recall uh, Jeff Goldblum's movie The Fly, where where he and this fly they get into this device and their genes are commingled and out comes this monstrosity. Um, for, for the layman and the non-scientist like me, am I anywhere close to envisioning that correctly, Dr. Poole? I never thought about that. And I like that movie a lot. That, that's a great movie. Jeff Goldblum's always great. Yes, I think that's actually, uh, that's actually a, a pretty good fit. That is very much how, how it works and that you end up with it, it. It's inaccurate to call it a chimera, but you end up with this mixture and, and you end up with, with a new agent that had the infectivity, some or all of human influenza. As you know, that's highly infectious. And the pathogenicity of this H5N1, when you look at something that's got you know, a 60% mortality rate, there are very few diseases that have that. And when I was talking to Wayne, I said, you know, if somebody gives you the choice of colon cancer or you know, H5N1, you should jump on the colon cancer because that's, that's got a much better chance than, than you getting infected with H5N1 avian influenza. All right. Well, well, well thank you, sir. Um, uh, Dr. Keen, let's go to you for a minute because uh, Dr. Poole was describing you know, just an absolutely bizarre you know, practice that he's seen relative to cockfighting, the mouth-to-beak resuscitation. Um, what are you seeing in U.S. cockfighting, the impact of bird flu on uh, U.S. Uh, fowl? USDA keeps a pretty good website tracking all of the bird flu outbreaks among poultry. And the US Geological Survey keeps track of deaths and outbreaks among wild birds. So we have a pretty good idea of what's going on right now. And as of right now, it's close to 60 million poultry have died and that's 44 million, about 44 million laying hens and about I recall about 9 million turkeys. So the majority are laying hens and turkeys. Why is that? Well, they live longer. They 
compared to like a broiler lives four to six weeks. So there's not really much time versus the, and the laying hens are kept in farms with like a million. I think there've been 20 outbreaks with on laying hens with farms with a million or more birds. So when they get in, like uh, Dr. Poole had said, it's not good for the birds. And as it is right now, they basically have to kill to keep it from spreading more. Although it's, I'm not sure it's working very well. Um, this is the biggest outbreak ever. And of course, the biggest risk in terms of linking to cockfighting is the reservoir, as maybe Dr. Poole mentioned this, it's in wild waterfowl originally. And what happened was it went from waterfowl and then when it gets into poultry, it converts from a less pathogenic to a more pathogenic state. And then it gets into the poultry and then it spread around again, as Dr. Poole said, it started in Southeast Asia, snaked around the world, got to uh, Europe in 2020, got into North America in late 2021. We've had it for more than a year. And um, I don't know if it's going to end because one huge unusual aspect was is avian influenza, like human influenza, doesn't like warm weather. And yet it's usually it dives out. If you have a spring outbreak, it dives out in the summer. It didn't do that this year. It kept going both in Europe and in North America. It maintained transmission and viability through the summer. So that's, that's a very bad omen, first time it's happened. So we may be stuck with it forever. And the role that cockfighters play in this is they have their birds are outdoors. And, and they believe that usually, they're not sure about this, but usually they believe that if you've got migrating birds, you've got a flock of maybe several thousand birds flying over a cockfighting farm where they're all kept out, outdoors, sort of in little teepees or uh, barrels uh, tethered to those because they have to be separated or, or the roosters will fight. When the birds defecate, they basically shower, they'll shower those um, outdoor uh, poultry operations, whether the backyard poultry or cockfighters, then it gets into those birds. And then if those, and what they believe happens typically is people who raise uh, cockfight, if there's commercial poultry around those, a lot of those people raise or attend cockfights will then go, will bring the virus into commercial operations, which are usually indoors. So there's a link both in the acquisition of the poultry from the wild bird to the poultry. And then, so the cockfighters could play that role as well as introducing it into the commercial operations if commercial operations are close to where the cockfighters are. And that's true in several states. We've mapped some of that out. And we know that in some cases, non-cockfighting operations are very close to large commercial operations. We've talked about this as a relay race with a baton. Think of the Olympics and think of the four by 100 or the four by 400. The first leg of the race are the wild birds traveling down the migratory flyways, the Atlantic flyway, the Mississippi flyway, the Pacific flyway. And as Jim mentioned, the cockpitting birds are outside. It's a housing system that's totally different from the way that, that other uh, birds are, are housed, other chickens are housed in the laying hen industry or the, or the uh, brother bird industry. So as Jim said, using that vivid term, you know, they're showered with the waste of these birds, they can contract the virus. So they're getting the baton from the wild birds. So the, the, the tethered cockfighting birds were out in these neat little rows with A-frame huts or, or blue barrels that, that stake them uh, are getting the virus. The, the baton then goes to the cockfighter who takes the bird and brings the bird to a fighting derby. 
So he moves the bird in state, Oklahoma, or in Arkansas, or in Tennessee, or they decide they're going to go to a derby three states away, or they're going to then ship the bird to Mexico, or they're going to ship the bird to Guam. And that's the third baton. The final leg is once they're there at the derby, which is in itself a mixing bowl of humans and birds, the people can get sick, the birds, some of the birds survive and go back. And then that gets moved on back to, you know, the place that may not have had infections. And now there's an infection there. I will note that some of the people who are showing up at these cockfighting operations are agricultural workers who are working in the poultry houses, they're working in the laying hen houses, and they may introduce the virus into that environment. I've talked to some of my friends in the egg industry, they say they are very concerned about that. They tell people, don't go to the cockfights. You know, a lot of these people uh, who are working in these very difficult jobs uh, that a lot of, you know, uh, multi-generation Americans don't want to do, these are immigrants, some of them may be illegals, uh, they are they are from countries that have legal cockfighting, like Mexico or the Philippines or Vietnam, and that's part of their that's that's part of their outlook. So this relay race, I think, is the way that it may move around. And I'll just use and and Jim, Dr. Poole, and, and Dr. Keen can correct me, but I remember an old sixty minutes uh, episode about how AIDS really spread rapidly in the 1980s. And they talked about one patient, I remember his name, his name was Gaetan Dugas. And he was a flight attendant. He was flying all over the world and he was promiscuous and he would go to China or he was to India or France or whatever, wherever he was going. And he was having sex and he was spreading the virus. The cockfighting birds are spread all over the world. You know, the birds at a laying hen operation or a poultry operation, they're never getting out of that building. I mean, except for the ride to the slaughter plant, which is probably gonna be close. These cockpitting birds are moving all over the world. This is a wholly different circumstance in terms of the rapid spread of this virus. And think what happened with, with SARS-CoV-2. I mean, it started in China and then in a few days, it was all over the world. Yeah, I was, I guess I'm in, in the mood to talk about entertainment today, but I was watching The Last of Us on HBO and there was an outbreak in, in one province and the doctor who was called in to, to talk about that said, just bomb everybody because it's going to be the only way you can, you can hope to stop the outbreak. And even that did it. So uh, Dr. Uh, Poole, let me ask you this. Um, what are the odds of people encountering dead birds, this virus just out on their own regard regardless of their uh, potential potentially catching bird flu from it you know but for example i had a guy post a friend post on facebook today that he was walking through a parking lot in a nearby town and the parking lot was was had like dozens of dead birds in it i mean are we likely to come across birds that have died from bird flu in our everyday activities these days well probably not so likely um they're we're sort of lucky maybe or, or unlucky in another way but but the wild birds don't seem to suffer with this as much as you got to understand influenza is really mostly a poultry disease gallinaceous birds so we're talking about you know turkeys chickens sometimes ducks um that really are the ones that have like this 100 percent mortality rate the wild birds have much lower mortality rates 
but their their infectivity, their ability to transmit the virus is tremendous. And so they can carry and spread it everywhere. When H5N1 hits a poultry farm, it can be two or three million birds in that farm. And within 48 hours, you, you'll have a half dozen survivors. And I know that sounds like a wild exaggeration, but, but you can look at the pictures of them, these just acres of birds lying dead. That is just how fast this thing sweeps through and kills poultry. So no, I don't think you're likely to see masses of dead birds from H5N1, but it's still not a good idea to really disturb any animal, any dead animal, Going to try to bury it and be careful, even as a veterinarian, you know, I don't, I'm always careful with a dead animal unless I know what killed it because it can be pretty easy to pick up the wrong thing. Tell us a little bit about your work in Guam and the export of birds to Guam for the purpose of cockfighting. I, I know I was very surprised, uh, for example, to hear how often the US mail is used to mail birds uh, from faraway places to your neck of the woods. Yes, that's correct. You are in Guam and you are in Guam just to let our listeners know. So that's my frame of reference. Right, right. I'm in Guam now. And uh, we, we looked back and in the preceding five years, we had received almost 12,000 uh, roosters, almost all roosters um, from the United States on Guam. Guam's an island of about 170,000 people. And we don't have... Um, poultry operations, we don't have big egg farms, we don't have poultry shows, we don't, there's no reason. And, and if you are moving poultry for agriculture, you're moving hens, you know, no, no one's moving roosters ever, you're moving hens. Well, all of these birds coming in, these 12, almost 12,000 birds were almost all roosters, adult male roosters. The only reason for doing that is cockfighting. Also the breeds were cockfighting breeds. These aren't meat or egg breeds. So there's absolutely no doubt what why they're doing those. And they have open cockfights here. They advertise in big billboards and everything, cockfight this weekend, whatever. It's illegal. It's it's against federal law here. It's been repeatedly. They always lost. It applies to the territories like Puerto Rico and Guam, but they do it anyway. Enforcement has been a problem for us. So yes, uh, the value of these birds is also tremendous in that um, sometimes these birds are worth many thousands of, of, of dollars. Uh, there's a story I've told many times about when I was working in a veterinary hospital here on Guam doing relief work, a fellow brought in a rooster with a broken leg that he wanted me to put in an intermedullary pin and repair it. And I was reluctant to do it because my success with those hasn't been very good. And I think he was afraid that maybe I thought price, you know, money was gonna be a problem. He said, Dr. Poole, he said, this bird right here paid for two of the houses I own. And he said, if you tell me it's going to cost $20,000 to repair this bird's leg, I'm going to say, go for it. So I didn't end up doing the surgery, but I'm just trying to make you understand how much money is tangled up with this, the gambling and the interest and, and the power that pushes this thing. Enforcement can be a problem because there is so much money behind this thing. When, when, when a owner of a hen house wants to make sure that bird flu doesn't get in there, how do they, how do they take get euthanize or prophylactically euthanize all of these birds? How do, how do they protect against it? Yes, I've, I've got no direct experience with this. I've just read about this, but I understand depending on whether the birds are um, on the ground, like um, brothers are there on the ground and laying hens, depending on their house, they can be either elevated in cages or um, cage free, in which case they can roost higher up. 
So my understanding is if the birds are on the ground to euthanize them and they do it quickly because it's spread so fast, um, they cover them like with firefighting foam to suffocate them. And then in the other houses that are um, like a laying house with maybe several hundred thousand or a million hens, they either use uh, carbon dioxide gas, pump that in with or without. Oftentimes they'll seal the building up. Uh, it's called ventilation shutdown. Shut the ventilation down for the building. There's obviously a building like that. You need to have ventilation with that many animals in it for just survival. And plus or minus increase heat, plus or minus add CO2 gas. So they will suffocate over a period of, um, I'm not sure, you know, minutes to hours, I suppose. Um, same thing for pigs, they do the same thing for pigs, the ventilation shutdown. So it's not, it's not a very pleasant way to die is the way I would describe it. It's slow, uh, slow death by suffocation um, either way. This is, a, this is an exceedingly controversial practice. Uh, animal advocates have condemned it. At the same time, you know, when you have 200,000 or 500,000 or a million birds, what do you do? I mean, our euthanasia strategies are based on individual treatments of a, of a solution, you know, like sodium pentobarbital. This becomes a terrible problem. This is why factory farms, large-scale operations, are very vulnerable to disasters, to disease outbreaks, and we have no good outcomes at, at this point. I want to mention, you know, a lot of us involved in animal advocacy have, you know, we criticize factory farms, we criticize cockfights, mink farms, et cetera. We deal with big numbers and big problems, and there's human agency involved that puts these animals in these terrible conditions and profits from uh, their, their exploitation. But these animal health issues are really consequential for animals. We have a real interest as animal welfare advocates to maintain animal health and well-being. You're talking 60 million birds dying? That's the number of animals globally in the entire fur trade. Out of all the trap animal victims, all the mink farms, all the chinchilla farms, the fox farms, it exceeds what happens in the entire global mink industry. These are astronomical numbers. And if you think about cockfighting and the horrible cruelty of people staging knife fights between animals and gambling on the outcome and being titillated by the bloodletting, that's horrible in its own right. But then when you think about the potential threat that they pose to all these other birds in terms of disease transmission, you can see that the tragedy is compounded. And that's another reason why we need to be concerned about this. It's a terrible outcome on these poultry farms, uh, whether it's a broiler uh, house or a, or a uh, laying hen house, are infected. And then, of course, you know, people still want the product, so they have to raise more. And you're just adding to the total amount of animals in production over time. You just haven't had a whole bunch of them wiped out that are not economically productive and not agriculturally productive, but it's a lot of lives that we should be concerned about. Joseph, if I could um, add something to build on what, what Wayne mentioned earlier. Um, I've inspected, I was 26 years in the Army Veterinary Command, and I was all over the world inspecting poultry farms, and some of them would have, you know, several million birds in there. And, and I can tell you, these places are trying, I mean, it's life and death for them as, as a business in order to keep diseases out. So they have screening all over the entire, and sometimes these are many acres, but they're completely enclosed in screen wire to keep wild birds out. 
and it has to be pretty small to keep sparrows out. And anytime that there's a break and a sparrow gets inside, everything stops until they get that sparrow removed. And so they're really trying very hard to isolate these farms. And as Wayne said, those birds remain isolated. And when you go visit that place, they give you a pair of rubber boots and you have to walk through this trench of um, germicide that uh, sterilizes your boots so that you can't carry anything from the outside in. So all of these poultry farms are trying just as hard as they can to prevent the transmission of disease for obvious self-interest. None of that applies to cockfighting. It's, it's the other extreme. And that's what concerns me so much. Dr. Keene, you did a lot of work with us uh, during the, uh, the height of our corona and mink concerns. You must be thinking a lot about mink and their potential role in this. What, why don't you give us an update on where, where your thoughts are relative to any role mink may play in this entire path? Well, actually, back in October of the past year, there was an outbreak of avian influenza, the same one that's around the world right now, on a mink farm. I forget the numbers, maybe you remember. I think it was 50,000 or oh, 52,000 mink were on this farm. So they, uh, out of an abundance of caution, they killed all the mink. Well, the mink were dying, number one, but they killed them all, the ones that were still alive. And they, at first, they thought it was COVID 19 because we know that COVID 19 also kills mink. But it turned out it was H5N1. Uh, to their surprise. and But the biggest surprise was it appeared to be trans... Normally, when H4, H5N1 gets into an animal, it dead ends. It kills the animal, but the animal, you, you get bird to mammal, but not mammal to mammal transmission. In this case, it appears that we had mink to mink transmission. So, and, they, and there was a mutation. They sequenced the virus that came out of the mink. There was a mutation. They're not sure what it means yet. Anyway, so that it's a... I don't... If, if it goes mink to mink, that the odds of it being able to transmit mammal to mammal or potentially human to human are much higher. So, and mink, and um, as Dr. Poole said before, uh, mink are a mixing bowl. They contain the receptors for human virus, for swine virus, for avian virus, so they can make the, uh, what was the Jeff uh, Goldblum uh, fly model version of a of uh, avian influenza virus. And let me just and say, Joseph, that, that Dr. Keene's report on mink farming and SARS-CoV-2, it was hundreds of mink farms that had outbreaks of SARS-CoV-2. And Dr. Keene and Dr. Poole have both pointed out to me about the unique susceptibility and vulnerability of mink uh, to these viruses. And when you look at all of the species that can be infected by SARS-CoV-2, and then potentially you know, if they do contract it, spill it over to human beings. It was just mink. There are only five documented cases of spillover, according to Dr. Keene's report, from humans infecting a, a, a non-human species, and then that species contracting the disease, the disease mutates and spilled back over to people. Five documented cases, all in mink farms. And here we have these mink farms, that are economically insignificant. They're producing a luxury good for the Chinese, not for Americans. And why would we be allowing the Chinese to outsource this, this threat to our homeland? I mean, what a perfect diabolical economic exercise. Let the Americans raise those damn mink and, and see what happens in terms of a mutating virus that can infect their economy 
and we'll just go ahead and get the fur coats. I mean, if you could devise something from the communist government to be disruptive to the United States, that would be it. Let's buy their let's buy their American furs. Uh, so I, I want to make sure I understand this because I think you just offered um, an answer to my question, Doctor Keen, which I've had for quite a while. And and what is it about make that make them so uh, susceptible? And, and that is just that they have different receptors, right? So. You know, if you have a round virus, it finds an animal with a round hole, a square virus, a square hole. But what you're saying, I think, is that mink have square holes, round holes, triangular holes. So so a lot more can attach to them or go through the way they're genetically built. That's a perfect analogy, Joseph. Yes. See, Wayne, that, that's why it's helpful to have a, a stupid person hosting <laughs> well, the show. I'm glad you're just not watching TV. You are reading something every once in a while, not just, you know, giving us your stories from movies and television. Excellent. I was going to say a sidebar, too, that actually they've known Minker in a family called Mustele, kind of with the skunk and weasel family. And and the ferrets are in that family as well, which are close relatives of Mink. And they use, when they do research, medical, biomedical research on influenza, they use ferrets. Which are so it's not at all surprising that mink would get infected with avian influenza, and it's not really surprising that they would mutate it as well because that's what viruses do when they get into a new host. They adapt well, to one. And and, and Dr. Kane's report, which really is essential reading if you really want to get into this topic, the the mink factory farm is a is a is an environment that really builds on the natural susceptibility of the mink. Either overcrowded, uh, they're highly stressed. Uh, they they are they are just ripe for infection because of all of the all the suffering that they're enduring in this overcrowded factory farm. And these are wild animals. I mean, they're not domesticated animals that have interacted with us for thousands of years. These are wild animals who want to swim. They want to they want to be in a semi-aquatic environment. And they're in a cage with a bunch of other mink. And they're you know cannibalism is frequent with these mink and when they interact. They attack each other. These are aggressive, carnivorous animals, and they they're solitary in their natural environment. You put them together, and it's a it's like an animal fighting situation, which means stress. I mean, if you're in a constant battle, you're gonna be stressed out all the time. It's like you know being in a prison with gang warfare. You know that's going on. Are you ever gonna be comfortable? No, you're gonna be horribly stressed. Go ahead, oh, Dr. Sorry. King. Yes, sir. No, I just ahead. thought there's there's sort of an analogy there between the um, you know the cockfighting breeding farms and the mink farms in the sense that you've got animals that really don't like each other, that want to fight each other, will fight each other at the opportunity with poor, uh, basically outdoor or poor lack of biosecurity and access to interacting with people. It's just not a, they're both just bad. They're bad for a lot of reasons, but it's be particularly bad for zoonotic disease risk. I'll go to um, uh, Dr. Poole, Dr. Keen for some final thoughts in a moment. But Wayne, uh, action is in our name. Uh, what are we doing as an organization to help protect animals and the American people? And what can our listeners do to contribute to that work? Well, we're we're introducing new legislation in Congress, uh, the Animal Fighting Amendments of 2023 to ban shipment of fighting birds, adult roosters through the U.S. mail. Uh, we are uh, creating with that legislation a private right of action against dogfighters and cockfighters so we can augment what our law enforcement agencies are doing to interdict these crimes. At the state level, we're fending off 
efforts, if you can believe it, in Oklahoma, cockfighters have organized themselves into a political action committee and they're lobbying lawmakers. Dr. Poole is gonna be in Oklahoma in the next few days lobbying on this issue and telling lawmakers not to, tell lawmakers not to listen to lawbreakers and not to overturn a voter approved law that outlawed cockfighting on cruelty reasons. But now we have additional reasons, which is poultry protection and protecting Oklahoma's agricultural economy from the movements of these fighting birds. We're doing a thousand things, uh, Joseph, as you know, and people should go to centerforhumaneeconomy.org, animalwellnessaction.org to learn about this. They should sign up, uh, put your email address and your, uh, and your full street address in so we know where you are. We can then tailor alerts, send them to you in your state when urgent actions come. And we obviously want people to support our work because you know only a group that has resources can draw talent like Dr. Keene and Dr. Poole into the cause of animal welfare. And we're grateful for everyone's support to enable us to have really the best professionals working on animal advocacy. Um, the threat in Oklahoma is two-headed, is it not? Because not only is the, the overall weakening of the state law, but I was really surprised to learn that one of the bills would allow counties to make up. So you'd, you'd be in one county and it may be illegal or, or the penalties lessened, go to the next county and it's 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 same as it was. It, that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, imagine if you had had 3,100 state legislatures, right? We have 3,100 counties in the U.S. We're going to have different rules. I mean, the state legislature is basically putting itself out of business, just going to devolve decision-making to the counties and forget about the states and their role. Let me say, you know, Oklahoma was, was created, I think, in 1907. Uh, there are many activities that have been, you know, rightly prohibited um, in the state, assault and battery, <laughs> cockfighting, dogfighting, uh, you know, hitting animals on the skull with a baseball bat. You know, we don't just say, okay, well, you know, if, if you're a county and you like, want to do that, you go ahead and do that. That's just not the way our system works. This is ridiculous. It's an outrageous balkanization uh, of, of ethics and morality. And it's an abdication of state responsibility and, frankly, their constitutional responsibility to deal with these issues at the state level. And Thank you, Wayne. And for our listeners, you mentioned a private right of action. If that is created, what will that mean? Say what that is and how that will help. Private citizens can can bring civil um, civil cases against cockfighters and dogfighters, just like we have a lot of private rights of action on other matters in our society. We have civil courts. And right now it's just a criminal statute. So you have to have the police investigate the prosecutor, you know, bring the case in a judicial venue. And this would allow civil cases so that we don't have to rely exclusively on criminal enforcement. Okay, all right, gotcha, thank you. Uh, Dr. Paul, any final thoughts? Uh, anything we've not talked about that you want to make sure our listeners know from your perspective? Well, I would like everyone to understand why I, I truly am alarmed about the potential of H5N1. I would like everyone to understand that when this thing gets into humans, which has happened a few hundred times, as I said, it has around a 60% mortality rate. 
with an entire hospital working on only a single patient. Imagine if there were hundreds or thousands of patients. That's not a 60% mortality rate anymore. It's probably a 90 or 95% mortality rate. So who's going to go to work under those conditions? Who's going to deliver food? Who's going to keep the power on? And I would ask you to remember in 2005 in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, they had to fire 55 New Orleans police officers. You know, the blue line that's supposed to protect us, they refused to report to work. They said, there's gangs out there, there's no power, there's no lights, it's too dangerous, I'm sorry, I'm gonna stay home and take care of my family. And they had to fire 55 police officers. If the police won't go to work, who's going to be delivering the fuel and everything else that we have to have? I don't think you can exaggerate the risks that we're looking at here. All right, well, and frighteningly, uh, said, Dr. Keene, final thoughts from you, sir. Yeah, thank you, Joseph. I would just say that if you think about both mink farming and cockfighting, all the two cockfighting, they're really abnormal activities, but they're human constructs. We created them. And so I think the impetus for us, and this is what AWA is doing, is to deconstruct them, to get rid of them and ban them because you really have no, there's no redeemable value for those forces from a societal level for sure. So we created them and we should destroy them. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Keene, I've watched you valiantly um, try to control your cat throughout this whole episode. And, and, and that's the, the, the mewing we hear, you know, it's funny, your, your cat always gets on the camera during a podcast. My dog always poops during a podcast. I don't know what it is. But whenever I get my microphone out, my dog suddenly decides it's 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 time, it's time uh, to it's go. It's you, so, Joseph. Yeah, he's basically saying you're full. He's signaling to you. <laughs> it's it's my dog's way of, of of giving me a metaphor for it. Thank you, Wayne. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. Um, all right, Wayne. Uh, since since you signed my paycheck, I always give you the last word, no. sir. No, listen, I'm, I'm just really, I, I think that it's important for us to talk about issues that don't get knitted together in the mainstream media. You know, people are asleep at the switch on these problems. I've been screaming from the rooftops ever since Dr. Keene wrote his report about mink farming and SARS-CoV-2. And now we have this avian influenza issue and the mink and nobody really understands how big the cockfighting industry is. I mean, we got to have people wake up. As Jim said, these are these are industries that have no socially redeeming values. This is just killing animals for a luxury garment for export and staging fights just so we can watch the animals kill each other. I mean, how is this even a debate in our society? It's amazing that we can have rational people defend this conduct. And we, we really got to demand more of our citizenry in this regard. Uh, so uh, with that, I'll say thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Doctors Keen and Poole. Uh, really do appreciate it. And certainly we want to thank our listeners. Thank you uh, for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. As Wayne mentioned, we are privileged to have uh, Dr. Jim Keen, Dr. Tom Poole on board. It takes resources to accumulate the talent we have to put it to the good work we do for the animals you love and we love. Uh, so while you're there, uh, please think about helping us with uh, a donation, monthly donation. We put it to good use. We're a lean, mean, 
animal welfare fighting machine and your coming on board with us financially and emotionally both are important so thank you you can find us on facebook and twitter and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on itunes podbean stitcher or spotify i'm your host joseph grove and we'll be back soon with another episode of the animal wellness podcast 